This presentation is from Design Research 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Uh, I'd like to introduce Mary. She uh, is at Think Place, and she's going to tell us about um, a whole lot about what it's like to work not in Australia. Thank yeah. you. Thanks. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Um, thank you for you know, being here at 4.30 in the afternoon. So I know everyone's, you know, had a long day, but there's been lots of great content, so that's really awesome. Yep, I work at ThinkPlace, which is um, a strategic design consultancy. Head office is in Canberra, I'm in Sydney, and I was to co-present with my colleague, Dean, who um, runs our Kenya studio. But logistics got in the way, and he couldn't make it. We were going to do a, a dial-in, but then... Hang on, I've got something to show you. But then last night, this happened. He sent me this email. I was going to dial him in for a conference. He goes, sorry, I literally, last minute, had to go to Geneva for a workshop with the UN. I was like, right, sure, mate. Um, so I did have to probe him a little to get some more information. And he was actually in Turkey, en route to Geneva. Um, and the project they're working on is pretty cool, which is worth sharing. So they're going to do some workshops with the... Uh, heads of innovation from different UN departments to look at the intersection of technology and human-centered design as a primary transformative force in achieving uh, the sustainable development goals. So I went, okay, I'll let you off this time. So anyway. So given that kind of last-minute switcheroo, um, forgive me if I have to read from my notes because some of the content is Dean's, some of it's mine, so it's all merged together. So anyway. So before I kick off, um, I just want to ask you all to stand up for a minute and do a very short activity, just to kind of shake it off a little bit. Um, so I want you to turn to the person next to you, hopefully it's a stranger, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I want you to discuss with the person standing next to you this next question. <laughs> so... Okay. <laughs> I thought that would be received with silence. You obviously all have a lot of stories to tell. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I didn't expect you to talk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can sit down. <laughs> um. <laughs> So I thought that would be met with an awkward silence, but clearly you're a, you know, kind of crazy audience. Anyway, so I was just trying to do that to remind us as researchers that being the subject in a research project can be quite confronting and challenging. Um, although clearly you guys didn't seem to think so. <laughs> anyway, so that brings me to the next thing. So. We're talking today about authentic research. That's what we've based our stories on. So we're thinking about, in, in our current context in the world today, when the word of the year for 2016 for the Oxford Dictionary was uh, alternative... No, not... <laughs> I'm mixing myself up. was post-truth. Um, and a contender for the word of the year for 2017 could be alternative facts. Saying, so given that we're researchers, how can we... Um, increase our chances of receiving authentic feedback from people when we are conducting our research. 
Um, and I was wondering about times, if we all stopped and thought about a time when we might have told a white lie or expanded the truth, bent the truth, because we were uncomfortable um, being honest or authentic. Um, there's lots of reasons, lots of barriers to truth, um, whether it's absence of trust, shame, cultural misunderstandings, um, or simply a desire for privacy. Um, for example, talking about things like this, it's not too challenging. Um, your degree of financial responsibility, your savings habits, career aspirations. You might be quite comfortable talking about those things with a stranger, researcher. But when it comes to things like um, personal hygiene habits, about why your family needs crisis accommodation, or how you ended up begging on the streets, these issues are much more sensitive and personal, and it might be, as a researcher, it's more challenging to understand true motivations. Um, and drivers. But as service designers, experienced designers, strategic designers, uh, you know, our role is frequently to look for intimate, intimate truths that lie behind act actions and behavior. Um, so how can we be sure that what we're hearing is the truth and what can we do to ensure that our research is robust? So how might we design our research to overcome the barriers to truth, to um, ensure that we have authentic, credible, trustworthy insights from our research, even if the subject matter is a sensitive one. Um, step one could be to look beyond the exploratory research interview. Um, I don't know about you, but many times it's like, this is the face I get when you ask a question. It's like, oh. Anyway. So thinking about, you know, is the exploratory interview our designer's version of a phone poll, as in it's very hard to achieve um, intimate truths and meaningful attitudes when we have an interview with a stranger in a short, compressed time. So what do we do? Um, if we had unlimited time and unlimited budget, we would do a cultural anthropology immersion for 10 years and live with our subjects and truly understand what's going on. Um, but obviously, we don't have the capacity for that financially or time-wise. So what can we do? To overcome the barriers for truth, we can firstly seek out multiple perspectives. So by applying a mixed-method research approach, we triangulate across um, sources and methods to find the sweet spot where we have a resonate, insights that resonate with our audience and, with our, and, and give us credible findings. So I'd just like to share a few projects um, from ThinkPlace, from um, Australia and also from Kenya, um, which, and they're particular projects that had particular challenges around achieving credible insights. So, but first I just want to give you a little bit of context about um, our organization, because we're quite different between Australia and Kenya, um, just to give you a bit of background. So in Australia, um, our head office is in Canberra, so a lot of our work is federal government um, or state government agencies. So uh, it might be digital projects, you know, redesigning integrated digital platforms for, you know, a large federal department, or co-designing citizen-centered policy reform. Um, in Kenya... It's quite a different set of clients because it, it's a clearly a very different context. Um, they, but they apply human-centered design in a development context, so for a range of clients. So their clients include NGOs, aid agencies like the World Bank, um, MSF, UN, etc. So their projects range from um, redesigning health insurance products and services for Kenyans to um, support universal health coverage. Um, working with agencies, aid agencies in Zimbabwe to change behaviour to combat the spread of HIV, 
to understanding the drivers for low participation um, rates in young children attending school in Kenya. So first thoughts are they're completely different contexts, which they are. But the uh, fact is we apply the same design methodologies across, across those problems because at the end of the day, we are looking for the same thing, which is to discover and understand human behavior and the motivations behind it. So the challenges um, I may face trying to understand the motivations of a person in Marrickville looking for um, legal assistance at a community legal aid center um, might be starkly different from the challenges Dean may face understanding the motivations of why a 10-year-old Nairobi kid skips school, but we're both looking for insights that are authentic and trustworthy. So one technique we commonly use is multiples perspective, which I mentioned before, um, particularly triangulation of research sources. So we look for um, a direct perspective um, or an inside view, which may include research participants from a range of segments or cohorts, um, across the depth and breadth of the organization or the customer base, you know, your primary customer base. Um, we then couple that with an indirect perspective or an outside in view, which may include external stakeholders, suppliers, people who interact with our services, product or organization, um, but they may not be in our direct target cohort. And then we might bring something in from left field, which at first, at first glance may not make a lot of sense. I'll go into that in a minute. But uh, one recent project I want to share with you is one I worked on in Sydney, which was an example of where we had to, because of the nature of the project, we had to use um, quite a range of sources for research. Um, and it was a project for the uh, uh, New South Wales Department of Justice. So we were asked to visualise the complex pathways of victims and perpetrators of domestic and family violence as they interacted with the criminal justice system um, and associated services in New South Wales. So... To understand what they were thinking, doing, feeling, um, we, we used the department had done primary research with victims and perpetrators. So then we engaged with a, a broad range of um, associated service providers. So that included police from the DV response unit, detectives who investigated the incidences, people who manned the phone lines on the, on the domestic and family violence phone lines, um, like call centre people, legal aid lawyers who represented the perpetrators, crisis accommodation providers, people who provide court services to victims and perpetrators, um, um, plus there, there was more as well. But basically we built out from that interaction, we built out quite um, a deep understanding of the complexities of the journeys of both victims and perpetrators. Um, the final product was an interactive dynamic journey map it's not very pretty to look at, that's just a slice of it. But essentially it was, um, it could be uh, changed and updated depending on who, it was an engagement tool. So it'd be like Jax was saying before, it was a tool used to inform policy and to inform change and, and that could be um, adapted de depending on the audience. But it was essentially used to ultimately support decisions that would lead to a reduction in domestic and family violence in New South Wales. So... An example from Kenya, similar space, was um, using um, multiple perspectives to uncover meaningful insights. When with the, the client was um, Population Services International, an aid agency, in Zimbabwe, and Zimbabwe has one of the highest rates of HIV um, in the world. 
with approximately 1.4 million people living with HIV in Zimbabwe, which is, you know, devastating. So there's an effective way of combating the spread of HIV, um, especially in the most um, at-risk group, which is males between the age of 15 and 24. Um, and it is a, um, a procedure called voluntary medical male circumcision, VMMC. So it's, it's shown to reduce the risk of contracting HIV by 60%, so it's extraordinarily effective. Um, and it's a one-time medical intervention with a lifelong partial protection against HIV. So it's really effective, um, as well as prevention against other STDs. But there's a low uptake of the procedure. And we were, worked with PSI. I mean, yeah, it's, we worked with PSI to find out why and to design some solutions to change this. So to better understand the barriers um, to uptake of the VMMC, uh, we drew on existing primary research, again, from men in the target audience range and their families. And we work with PSI uh, clients, medical professionals, um, and other, other stakeholders across a series of co-design sessions to build a shared understanding of the key target segments and the behavioral motivations behind blocking the uptake of the procedure. So one insight from this procedure was that there was a significant and misplaced fear of the pain associated with the procedure. So one solution that came out of this was um, they developed a painometer, which allowed men to understand the pain that they would experience in relation to something that they could, you know, something tangible to them, something they could understand. Um, in, and it was like being pricked by a thorn. So it's a simple analogy, but it communicated effectively. It had the power to nudge the behavior. Um, so that's just a couple of projects you know, where we're looking at multiple, bringing in multiple perspectives of research. So I just want to now talk a little bit about the other part of that triangulation image I showed you, which was the left field example. So this guy, some of you may know this, especially you, if you're from the UK, but anyway, if, you, if you've heard this story, just indulge me for a minute, because people who haven't heard this story, it's, it's really important for, I feel, as for designers to understand or see this perspective. This is um, Professor Martin Elliott. He's a child's thoracic surgeon at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London for children. Um, and he's a pioneer in comparative research, essentially. Well, that's in, in my view. I think he's pretty awesome. In 2006, after a particularly bad day at the office, um, which in his case means you know, a six-hour heart procedure on a, on a young child, um, he and, another, and one of his colleagues, Dr. Goldman, were chillaxing in the green room, or whatever they call it, after they come out of surgery, um, just having a, a debrief on the day, because they both had these super huge, long um, procedures with involving young children. And they were discussing uh, the challenges around the handover, patient handover. So at the end of a um, surgery procedure, um, that's quite a complex procedure where they go from surgery, the patient, into ICU. And it's a bit like... Um, a complicated dance between, an intimate dance between surgeons, anaesthetists, ICU staff to transfer the patient, equipment, information safely and quickly from the operating, unit, operating room to the ICU. And it's a high risk of um, um, problems that can happen in that short period of time. So while they were having this debrief talking about that particular procedure, there was a television on in the background with a sports program, and then there was it flicked to coverage of the European Formula Grand Prix. And then when it flicked to a close-up of a pit stop change, 
the doctors had a collective you know, revelation. They were looking at the Ferrari team undergoing a pit stop change. So they saw the focused team work of the pit crew performing complex tasks with time critical maximum precision. And the accuracy of the crew had life and death implications. So they immediately saw the parallels to what they were talking about themselves in their own process. So the revelation for the surgeons was that the critical process of changing the tyres and topping up the fuel um, mirrored the handover process in their situation. And they thought, if they can do it so efficiently and effectively and so well and so professionally and with no, no hiccups, why can't we? So it was the beginning. They, they then got in touch with Ferrari, and it was the beginning of a very broad, very important um, milestone medical research process that ultimately changed the way that they did their process in Great Ormond Street Hospital, and it's rolled out and it's, been, it's had wider implications in the medical community. So we use that as a story, and we share that with clients to try and get them to embrace something that's out of their comfort zone, to get them to be brave and look, at, um, look beyond their sector for areas of excellence, examples of innovation that can help them drive change in their own space. So that's what we mean by trying to find something from left field that's inspirational and will help come up with innovative solutions to the challenges. So we talked about triangulation of sources and then just briefly on triangulation of methods as well. So... You know, we've got the accessible one-hour exploratory interview, which is great, but um, how do we supplement that? What can we do to um, give ourselves more robust research results? So if we supplement it with, you know, ethnographic observation, shadowing, video, video photographic journaling techniques, whatever you can do to give your research new eyes. So now I'm going to share another um, project from ThinkPlace Kenya, which is, which is really an, an interesting one, and it's fundamentally um, it's about the education system in Kenya. And, and essentially the research challenge was um, how might we truly understand the gaps in the current education system in Kenya. So the first public education in Kenya is free, but the first rounds of research, but there were still gaps in attendance. So first rounds of research, interviews with parents, communities, um, schools, basically told us, and supporting other existing reports, told us that education is the most important thing to everyone in Kenya, and people would give up food before giving up or sacrificing their children's education. But the reality, so the observations that we were making, were that this just didn't hold water, because on school days, there was kids everywhere in the town, and they weren't at school. So... The challenges with this kind of research in this cultural context is that um, children in rural Ken Kenya are, are afraid to talk openly about their experiences at school because culturally it's very shameful not to send your children to school. So children and adults would you know, obfuscate the fact. It's very, very challenging to find out the actual truth um, and why, to find out actually why they weren't attending school. So we did the first round of, immersion of, of, sorry, of interviews, and then we did some immersion in the schools and in the communities. So to, to, this is a rural school in Kenya where um, the Think Place team spent several days participating with students in classes, but uh, just about the process. Basically, they, first of all, they just went in at lunchtime and recess and played with the kids or you know, interacted quite 
Oh, two minutes. Okay. So they did total, total immersion, which was really great. They also did art therapy, which was a really amazing way to gather meaningful insights with the children. Um, so, sorry. I'm just going to skip a little bit because I'm over time. Um, so it gave us an opportunity to, to understand genuinely that children's perceptions around school. So the, the insights were that the schools, there's a lot of corruption in Kenya. So even though the public education is free, the schools would, teachers would withhold information from students, which was critical to tests. And they would say to parents, you need to pay us before we give the information to kids. So informal fees. And the headmasters would do the same. Um, and they would sell off equipment and the money would vanish, and so that they would have informal requests for funds from two parents. So the parents couldn't afford that. So they had to force the kids out of school. And so the kids were devastated because they loved the school, loved going to school and learning. So it was a really complex situation. And in the research, they found all kinds of other kinds of disturbing social issues. Anyway, so... Um, they also heard stories of child labour and abuse related to education, so it was all quite confronting. But the research gave a very real picture of the education system and important con contradictions which emerged, which helped us to understand and appreciate that some of the narratives around education are heavily skewed. Um, okay, so only a couple of case studies, and I'm almost out of time, so I just wanted to leave one thought with you. So during that process, that um, research process around education in Kenya, Dean, who's going to be here today, was away um, at Mombasa for a weekend, which is a you know, beautiful coastal village. And he was talking to a local man about the challenges they were facing in the research. He said, you know, they're telling us all this stuff, but it's not, it's not valid. We're, you know, we're, we're struggling to find out the, the actual authentic truth. And um, I just want to share one, an insight that the gentleman he was speaking to gave him, because he, he shared an insight into the Kenyan mindset, which is something that feels like a universal human truth to us, and that's that a lot of the time Kenyans will tell you they're drinking water, but really behind closed doors they're drinking wine. So I think as researchers that's the human truth that um, we can get behind by applying mixed method approach that's tailored for the context, which is also really important. And that's that. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Design Research 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.